Welcome to Innovation at the Edge, a podcast dedicated to bold ideas that will build a more sustainable and resilient world. We interview global thought leaders and discuss what's new in innovation and share insights for both entrepreneurs and corporations to build more agile and resilient businesses. Tomorrow's low-carbon and all-electric world will be created by both disruptive entrepreneurs and large corporations. And this podcast provides advice to both on how to scale their ideas. I'm excited today to interview Sean Murphy, CEO and founder at Titan AES. Schneider Electric invested in Titan AES because we not only believe in that technology, but also in Sean and his leadership team as entrepreneurs. Sean has a unique perspective on innovation as he has both run an innovation center for Shell, the oil and gas conglomerate, and has been an entrepreneur many times over, scaling his innovative ideas into real companies. Titan AES as a technology that extends the life of any lithium-ion battery, something that can revolutionize the world of renewable energy, electrical vehicles, and many other applications using batteries to store energy. I know you learn more from your failures than successes. And that was that self-reflection that kind of led to the next subsequent company, but then going and working for NASA through Draper and doing a lot of good projects over there, which led to Shell and eventually saying, well, let's go back to my roots, go to entrepreneurship. But from day one, we I always knew that I wanted to partner with a company, a larger scalable company. Because one thing that a small company cannot do is they cannot scale globally or scale anyway as larger companies like Shell had or what Schneider has. Because that's what I, that my job was. And is to grab technologies, integrate them and scale them in, in Shell. And this is exactly the same. I'm in the opposite position where it is and I'll talk about that. So that's the kind of the journey and almost my life journey kind of led to this place where I'm right now. Hi everyone, I'm Emmanuel Lagaric, Chief Innovation Officer at Schneider Electric and I'm Extremely pleased today to have with us Sean Murphy, co-founder and CEO of Titan AES, a very early stage company and a company that will probably change the world of batteries and energy storage and and make a dent in what uh, is also a very important market coming up. That's the electrical vehicle, but Sean will give us a lot of details, I'm I'm sure, about, about all this so that we understand why this company may be a critical component of uh, what we call today the energy transition. Sean is also a reincident entrepreneur. He'll he'll tell us a bit about about that, about his life, and and a lot of experiences which can bring very interesting learnings to all of us. Sean, thank you very much for being here. Thank you so much, Emmanuel, for having me over here. Thank you. So, Sean, let's start by, by you. You grew up in what would today be Serbia, that was Yugoslavia at the time. You are half American, half... Serbian and your personal life and your personal experience led to your first business. Can you tell us a bit about that? No, oh, absolutely. So just like you said, my mother is Serbian. So I grew up in northern Serbia or then Yugoslavia. And my my father is from Boston. So for the my formative years was back in Yugoslavia. And I grew up in a small little town north of Belgrade. It was basically an agricultural community. So with my my grandfather and all that, we you know, it's like hard working. You wake up really early like a good farmer at five thirty or six o'clock in the morning, you have to go feed the pigs and all the rest of that stuff. So it's a very strange journey from a kid on a farm 
to eventually put something in space and and work with large companies and travel around the world. So I always say that's the miracle of the 20th and 21st century to have that opportunity. So that that experience on the farm in in Serbia and your personal life as half American, half Serbian led to your first entrepreneurial adventure. I would argue that was at the right time with the right geographies in the right market, right when global markets were starting to digitize, where Eastern Europe was was opening up to the world. Some would argue that was right at the beginning of, of an era, which is probably closing now. And that was almost 30 years ago. Can you tell us about that, that business? Absolutely. So when I went to school, I went to UMass Amherst, and it was for physics and astronomy. And for me, I just kept on seeing this internet because we were just transitioning away from servers or VAX servers at the time, which was done by digital. And this new internet was popping up. And as that thing we were looking, we said, this this has exponential growth. And when you have exponential growth, we said by 96 or 97, nobody will be able to track this thing. It's just how it's growing. And we said, you know what? I don't think I need to go to graduate school. I cannot miss this boat. The first company was a software market gathering. And within about 12 months, it was acquired. And I wish I was smarter and built that company to a far bigger thing. But I was 25. And for me, it was the allure of that turnaround. Now I made something. And then the next thing I did is I headed over back to Boston. And I enrolled myself into the executive MBA at MIT. And then another company came out of it, which was basically an ebook company. Again, for me, there's always a pa- there has to be a passion behind everything. The first one was the passion of basically helping farmers and getting the pr- their right price into the play so they are not scrutinized by the local concerns or the local systems. And if you have the information, you're liberated. And then the second company was, I love to read books. I love to read. I am a ferocious reader, so I read a lot of books. And for me, the educational, the U.S. college system, the book market was so expensive and cost prohibitive. Basically, when you go buy an engineering book, it's a couple hundred dollars. And I was like, come on, this is just why should it be so expensive? So I thought maybe we should go into the ebook market. So the second company was building an ebook. So not only did we have to invent the ebook, and it was a project that started at MIT. We got funding, we built a team, and we built our first prototypes using e-ink technology. And we basically worked with the founders when they were still at the lab, in the media lab, that later on we we worked together to build first prototypes of the e-books. Now, later on, e-ink got acquired by Philips and, and got invested by Amazon. That's what every Kindle uses. So basically, the one of the first prototypes that they ever had is sitting actually in my home office because we, we are the ones we work together to build that. Unfortunately, that company never took off to the level that we wanted it. It, it had, I think it was a too early on certain aspects of it. And one of them was battery power, believe it or not. After that one, I went and learned the lesson from that one is that you security of copyright was very important. 
And so the next company was to build a fabulous semiconductor company that basically is protects the ebook. We worked on that one for about four years and it was successfully acquired through the US government because it went into military technology. That was my serial entrepreneurship for a while on, on that thing. So now we are already up to three companies. Yes. Um, and then that's when you take a turn in your, in your professional life and you decide to go for large organizations, governmental and corporates. What happened here? It's a very interesting thing because in many ways, I, I think I burnt out, meaning it was a lot of, as a CEO and a founder, you carry a lot on your shoulders. You have to drive the pace and everything else. As you, as like a, if you're a cyclist, you know, on the Tour de France, you, you have the pace pacemaker, the guy who makes the pace to run it. So as CEO, you drive the pace. And that is a, and after 12 years or 10 years of that, it starts getting hard. But so we sold the company and now I was like, I'm going to take some rest and I rested. And I was like, so what I'm going to do next in life? And I said, what is my other passion in life? And that was space because that's what I went to school for. And I said, well, I would like to work on space. And fortunately, I lived in Boston and there was a national lab called Draper Laboratory, which had been involved in the space program and in rockets since the beginning of the, the American space adventure since the 50s. When I left after eight years, we were part of the Mars mission and we detected water on Mars. It was just like this wonderful adventure working with so many smart people. And that kind of gave me the sensation I can actually do things in larger companies. Because, you know, working with NASA and looking, and I got really excited. And you work with scientists that were like Sarah Seeger. I worked with many, many years with her. She's a very famous scientist for exoplanets. The CTO of Shell watched one of my talks and he came up to me and we started having a conversation. And he kind of understood that the system engineering is very interesting how to do things. And then we started having projects with Shell, Draper did. And then a couple of years later, and he says, can you build an innovation center or advanced engineering system for Shell here in Boston, just basically on the principles that you're saying? And I said, well, that's kind of interesting. I never thought about it because I was a very happy Career-wise, I was just very happy where I was. It was just like everything was going, just, you know, just going. But I usually love adventures. And I'm, as I say, I'm an impatient person. So because I always want things to go faster. And I said, yes. And we took, it took us about four or five months to negotiate what we need to do. Because I said, if we don't set it right, and if it's too much oversight or too much tentacles from the mothership, I think it will kill it. And when I left Shell, we had 84 engineers working and we added about $1.6 billion in savings or revenue to Shell after four years. That was just a crazy, crazy good adventure. Then we are in... 2016 now. <laughs> 2016, one, two, three, four, five pivots in your in your career already. And then you leave Shell, and that's when you create Titan AES. Yes, and the, this one was very... Because I always wanted to do renewables. And one thing that always kept on popping out, where renewables are generated or where energy is generated, it's not where it's consumed. And there's this discrepancy. So how do you do that arbitrage? And then even if you have 
solar panel or wind. Again, it's this arbitrage of that. So everything led to you need to have better batteries. But we knew the price of batteries, even though they were coming down at the time considerably. This is 2013, 14. And by the time I left at 2016, they dropped almost 80%. But we knew from looking at it from the resource point of view, because we went the bottoms up, understanding if you're mining it and if you're shipping it, call it in South America or in for rare materials in China, and then you're assembling it and all that aspect of it, that you're coming down to a price point, the maximum lower ceiling that you can get drive it is around 120. And 2016, when we were looking at, and this is per cell, not per module, when we were looking at it, it was around $240, $250. And so there was many ways to go, and we projected that will take another 10 years to get to that point. But then I said, well, all these EV cars are buying these expensive cells, but what are they doing with them? And then I started digging into it that the warranties are only seven years. And then I was like, so why is the warranty only seven years? And the warranty of the seven years is dictated by the manufacturer, meaning like LG, Samsung, and Panasonic. And that's dictated by the knowledge of their state of health. Because when they come to 70%, there's a certain amount of cycles that they go through that they are knowledge. They don't know where they're. The error rate of their knowledge of what the remaining capacity is plus minus 10%. If you are using the battery at that time, you can go dangerously low voltages or you can go dangerously high voltages and you can basically do a thermal runaway and you can blow up the batteries. It can cause irreparable harm to not only to the battery, but to the ESS system or to the vehicle. So Sean, before we get there, just to make sure everybody understands how how critical what Titan AES is is doing or is trying to do, right? So, So it's clear for everyone that batteries are really the key enabler of, of course, electrical vehicle. And there's a lot of innovation still happening in batteries and a lot of people trying to understand how we can build a supply chain around batteries, gigafactories popping up everywhere in Europe, how you can build and bring new technologies. Elon Musk is promising a very big announcement on, on batteries later this month. There's a lot of, I would say, effort and competitive pressure coming up because everybody understands that that's really going to change the transportation industry to start with. And then second, to your point, this energy transition, that world of decentralized, decarbonized, digital uh, energy we all have in mind and where we see that, well, in, uh, in 20 years from now when... We all consume as a planet three times as much electricity as we do today. There is no way that electricity can come from central power plants and being distributed through a grid. I mean, the grid will still be there, but with a different function. And everybody will produce their own energy, the roof of their house or their business, and share it and exchange it with neighbors. Now, to your point before, there is no way this can happen without efficient batteries because, well, you produce renewable energy in a place or at a moment where you but that may not be the moment or the place where you need the the energy. So now, this is why the batteries are, are a critical piece. And what you're doing, and, and again, there's I see a lot of similarities with your ebook story and your first business in Serbia. You're very, very early on something that is in an industry with a lot of hype or with a lot of change coming up. You're solving a problem that probably very few people have seen, and that's going to be unique. And you can change an industry which is changing, right? So you can have a, an acceleration factor in, in, in all that 
construct of of and all that that hype that's around batteries today. So that's what Titan AES does. But now let's go into the details. What does your technology do ex- exactly? To the extent you can you can share. So what we do is we measure the molecular state changes of a battery using ultrasound. That's our first product. And so what that does is you can bifurcate that product in two separate things. Is if you're an EV storage space or if you're a car, we would measure the state of charge and state of health real time to the battery and provide it to the existing BMSs. Exactly. And this is important to understand for everyone, right? That's that today, to your point before, if you want to know exactly what the state of charge of the battery of your phone, of your car, of your house, you can infer that through some indirect measures. It's an estimate. It's a very gross and rough estimate. If you try to optimize too much for this, you say, well, I'll, I'll try to charge my battery as much as I, as I can. Well, you, you run the risk of overheating the battery and, 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 and having it catching on fire. We saw that in some generations of some smartphones where, where they were trying to optimize the battery life. And because they didn't have a technology like the one Titan AES is developing, now if you have certainty of the state of charge, well, that's you know exactly where you stand. Uh, and you can charge a battery a bit more, so you have more power in, in, the, in the same battery, and it's much safer. And then the other thing you're bringing is the state of health. You know how many cycles and how long exactly this battery can, can still go. And to your point before, today, when you have an EV, and they will tell you, well, maybe you need to change the batteries after seven years, after eight years. Why? That's statistical evidence and experience, but it's not really scientifically um, proven. And this is what you're changing, right? Yes. Yeah. Right now, they measure an open loop in engineering terms. Basically, they're looking at, for state of health particular, they're using a lookup table that they degraded batteries in a lab four or five years ago. And then what they say, if you apply this amount of current in this environment, you should approximately think about the degradation of this much. And as we know, driving a car in Hong Kong or driving a car in Arizona and driving a car in Norway will give you three different results. And uh, each person drives it differently in your inputting error rate in your voltage measurement. So you're constantly compounding the error. And that's the reason why the battery manufacturers only give you seven-year warranty. And at that time, they curtail the capacity tremendously. So they're not liable for systems. So what we offer to to the customers is real-time knowledge of state of charge and state of health that you can safely drive the batteries double, almost double its lifetime. And at the same time, you can drive it more because you don't have to have the safety buffers. Right now, you have the safety buffers because the best state of charge BMSs are around 4% state of charge uh, accuracy. That means you have to keep a buffer at least of 10% on both sides. So right now you can eliminate that so you can shrink your car battery size or optimize your stationary storage size. It's an upfront investment savings and optimization and longevity optimization. And and it's all done by ultrasound, which is kind of cool. It's very cool. So and, and if you think about it, the the impact this will have on the economics of, of the automotive industry and the electrification of the world in general is is huge because Roughly today, the, the cost of the batteries represents 40% of the cost of an electric vehicle, right? So if you can double the life of that battery, so if instead of, of using it only for seven, eight years, because this is 
the best we can do today. And you can really have a deterministic approach to how long your battery can go and you can double the life. You really change the entire economics of the whole supply chain of the, the automotive industry of the future. So that's, that's quite meaningful. It's fascinating because, you know, listen to the voice of the customer. And one of our partner companies is a German company, which they, they still don't want uh, to be known. Working with them, they taught us a tremendous amount about what the value proposition is. And the value proposition, of especially when you have a high, call it cost vehicle, if you have this longevity, it's very important. The other part, which is very important for them, is they, they cannot resell it easily. Because every single time when the car comes at the end of its life, the battery, they don't know what to do with it because they cannot extract a pack. It's all of a sudden there, this in conundrum, what to do, because the, they design vehicles, meaning the chassis, the electronics, to last for 15 years, as you said earlier. But the battery pack is only for this. But even though the battery pack can work for 15 years, but you don't have the knowledge of it and how it's architected, they can't use it. So this technology matches the life of the car with the life of the battery. So all of a sudden you can use the car for 20 years, they can resell it so you can do a certified pre-owned lease by, by the car manufacturer. And it just enables this whole economics to work where it was more of a detriment right now. And that's a, that's a big value proposition for them, besides the safety part and all that. Yes, yeah, so you bring safety, which has always been critical for the automotive industry, and you and you change the economy. So, so that that that's a pretty big impact. And then, yeah, second life batteries. What do you do with with those batteries when you take them out of the cars? You can still use them, especially if you have the Titan AES technology. Well, you would use them in buildings, in in what we do at Schneider Electric to decarbonize and decentralize the energy system. That's what we are working on together, right? Yes, and this is this is where I'm super excited because. We both realized that this is where they have that big company, small company scalability and where that synergy works. So let's say, well, not let's say that is the truth. So uh, Schneider has a lot of positive reputation with larger companies within Europe and opens up doors that we just we could not do in a million years. It just doesn't happen. And I have to say Schneider acts like a true partner. It, do, it doesn't treat us as a junior partner, treats us as an equal partner, even though the equality doesn't exist. But the, that that's what they're doing. And that that's just truly amazing in, in many ways. So we're coming over. And then when Nissan, let's say, they or Renault retires their batteries after six or seven years, there's still several thousand cycles, almost 4,000 cycles left in those batteries. How do you manage that? And that's where the coming in that we can scan those batteries very quickly with our Scorpion device. This is coming, it's going to be introduced this, this December. It's going to go into the market. And then together with Schneider, we are jointly trying to build an ESS device that can go into residential systems using these inexpensive batteries that come out of Nissan Leaf, Renault cars. And this kind of augments the circular economy. So it's now putting, where, you know, it's really putting, you know, where the money, where the mouth is. You know, it's not just a, just t telling stories about the circular economy. This cannot be more closer to the truth. Meaning instead of sending the batteries to be recycled for principal components, we're taking them out, which used to be a liability. Now it becomes an asset and they are going to have another five or six years into their life where they're fully auto optimized 
into the second life application, like a ESS residential or commercial. And then after that, when there is absolutely no more juice into them, then they go for the main recycling, like Umicor or some other large companies, again, which is another relationship building which Schneider did in Europe. So I guess uh, everybody starts to grasp a bit why Titan NES is going to be a critical player in all these these, these markets of the energy transition and the, the electrical vehicle, because not only you optimize the cost of the supply chain and the entire value chain of, of electrical vehicle, but you also enable storage, energy storage in homes and buildings at an affordable price, making it more attractive for, for consumers and businesses who want to have their own microgrid and their own energy system at home. But on top of this, this is also an enabler of a more circular economy where you don't throw out the battery after just the seven years that that we thought the battery would, would believe. You take more juice out of it, thanks to Titan AES uh, technology. Let's go back to a point that, that you mentioned several times in your stint at, at Shell, where you, you were looking at how you would build, I would say, an efficient relationship between entrepreneurs and, and a large corporate, which is also what we tried to do so together with you, what I personally call MDMS, Mothership Distance Management System, right? So this is where you have to be very, very careful, even though we're looking at the same problem, we want to solve the same problem and, and bring the same business opportunities. Startups and entrepreneurs and large corporate don't always have the same view of the world, the same incentive, the same DNA. So what are the, the, the key success factors in the relationship between a, an entrepreneur and a large corporate? I would say there's two main flavors that I, I think it's very, very important. It has to do with the people actually with a larger company inside. You have to have a champion inside that can be truthful and very direct with with the entrepreneurs because entrepreneurs are tend to be lured they see big company they think big money and they see oh i'm going to do this and that that's the furthest from the truth yes there is that but there are many steps that need to be done before that will happen having to understand how the large company is structured how the large company operates, what is its DNA, has to be understood. So somebody has to do that translation. I know I was sitting in that when I was in Shell, and we were always saying, people don't know what our business are. They don't know our strategy. They don't know what we're trying to do. We can tell them to the extent to a certain point, but once we get them into a certain, call it, zone of confidence, we have to be very direct with the entrepreneurs because the speed of a larger organization is always slower than the speed of entrepreneur. The one thing we should never do is string startups along, even though no, you just tell them this is not the right technology, this is not the right fit right up front because the worst thing it is that they will spend hopefully hope into this thing, and then that will just lead to a dead end and you kill the technology, even though it's a good technology. So what I'm trying to say is people try to sell too much and oversell and just trying to make the deal. This was more like, we have something cool over here, you have something cool. How do we come together to figure this out? And what is the timeline? Again, it's that you have to have the right people from both sides and, and speak honestly. And sometimes that is uh, in the modern world of fast-paced investment and trying to broker a deal, the honesty goes out of the way, meaning you have two camps and they're trying to, it's an antagonistic kind of who's going to come up on top. 
this thing was basically was just like, let's just be completely honest and see how do we capture together this opportunity. And that's the reason we're super happy that Schneider invested because that's well, that's the relationship. Thank you, Sean. And I think it's it's really it's really great that you're sharing this from your point of view because this is what we try hard and and as you said, it's not obvious for a large company to get there. And sometimes people just see the cosmetic part of it, the marketing. So for instance, we met through a very important event, which was a Bring Your Bold Ideas Challenge that was two years ago at Greentown Labs, the larger clean tech incubator in North America, probably arguably in, in the world, uh, led by Emily uh, Rijka. So everybody would would see those pitch contests and those, those things as it's very fancy. And many times, large corporates just stop there. Well, we do a pitch contest. We, have, uh, we bring our executive team to, to meet startups there everybody's happy and then we go, we go back home and and we resume business as usual no that's that's a visible part of the iceberg that's that's what people see but the real work is exactly what you described if you really want to meaningfully create value for the startup and for the company and really do do something that's mm-hmm. going to change um, to change the world so thank you thank you for sharing this so Sean with all those adventures that you've been sharing with us if you had to share a couple of big learnings for people who want to become entrepreneurs uh, or people who want to work with startups from a large corporate organization. What what would be the advices? What are the, the two, three big learnings that you've had in your in your very rich and, and diverse career? One of them would be system thinking. And when I say system, just don't think about a component. You have to think about always how does this work in a greater system? So you you have to go from the economics, the business, the layers of technology, the interfaces. On the personal side, what, what did you learn about yourself? What's the advice about you would give to someone who wants to start a company today? First principles. I'm a physicist, and, and basically I always go down to first principles. And the first principles in engineering, first principles in science, and first principles in business. And so there's three things when I think about it. It's system engineering, first principles, and team building. Because without a great team, nothing will happen. And you really have to cultivate good teams. And the fourth one is to get out of the way. You hire the right people for the right job, and you enable them by providing them resources or guidance, and you just get out of the way. Because you you don't hire them to be robots and micromanage them because that's the worst thing in the world to do. Well, that's a great advice. Thank, thank you, Sean, for sharing all this with, with us. It was a great conversation and really honored and happy to, to see you. And I think we, we learned a lot of things today thanks to, to, to your experience and to everything you've been kind enough to, to share with us. And, and again, first principles are system thinking and Team building. This is what I I would take away. Thank you very much, Sean. See you very, very soon, I hope. Thank you so much. And thank you for the opportunity to speak today. And again, it's been a pleasure to be a partner in this journey. And let's change the world for a better place. Let's go for it. Thanks for listening to Innovation at the Edge by Schneider Electric. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify so you'll never miss an episode. If you like this episode, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. For more information on the Innovation at the Edge program at Schneider Electric, go to se.com slash ventures or follow us on LinkedIn. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be undertaken as financial, economic, legal, business, tax, or investment advice. 
The information, statements, views, and opinions should not be construed as the provision of advice by Schneider Electric or as an offer to buy or sell any products or services or to make or consider an investment or course of action.